Well, you know, this past week, there's been all kinds of reflections going on about the Queen. And of course, Queen Elizabeth II passed away, and I believe tomorrow is when the funeral is, and there's been all kinds of pageantry and protocol going on about that. Lots of stories about her history, her long reign. Uh, but one of my favorites was this one. Maybe you've seen it, but I thought I'd show it to you. Here we go. <laughs> well, one of my favorite stories is when we were at Balmoral, and the Queen used to go up there in May to Cregowan House and just stay there privately for a weekend. And she would go out at lunchtime for picnics, and very often it would just be the police officer and Her Majesty. And one of the picnics I went out with her, we had a lovely picnic and a lovely chat, and then we went for a little walk, just the two of us. And normally on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody, but there was two hikers coming towards us, and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> so the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes round, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> Anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America, and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if you have been looking at your Rooted book. A lot of you that are in Rooted groups that started this last week, you know, we're doing different topics every week, and the topic this week we're looking at is this question, who is God? Uh, that's a pretty big question. God is kind of a big deal. He's even bigger than the queen. And, and yet, I think that sometimes, like those poor hikers, people meet God and don't even recognize him for who he is. So this morning, we want to think a little bit about who is God. Now, if you've been around at all, you'll know that there are lots of people who think lots of different things about who God is, or gods, or the power behind the universe. Lots of different ideas. There are thousands of religions in the world, and each one of them claims to have some unique knowledge, unique insight as to who God is. Uh, maybe you've heard the old uh, East Indian story about a group of blind men who went to visit the Raja. And the Raja uh, thought it would be fun to ask them to identify one of the animals in his menagerie. And he brought on an elephant. He let each of them grab hold of the elephant. And he said, can you tell me what sort of animal this is? And uh, one guy was feeling the trunk. And he concluded that an elephant must be something like a snake. It's long and it's skinny and it twists around a lot. Another guy had wrapped his arms around one of the elephant's legs and he concluded that an elephant must be like a tree with a strong trunk. 
And a third guy had got hold of a tusk. And he said, no, an elephant is like a spear. It's, it's hard and thin and sharp. And of course, the Raja laughed at all of them because he realized that in one sense, they were all right, but in another sense, they were all completely wrong. The, the story has some good applications. I mean, certainly when we have a difference of opinion with other people about things, it's good to have enough humility to recognize that sometimes it's just a difference of perspective that we're talking about. But some people take this story and they use it as a way to understand God and the world's religions. And they say, no, really, it's just that all the world's religions are touching the same thing. They just have a little bit different perspective on it, but really it's all the same. And, and it's a tempting image because if it's true, it means that everybody's right. Whatever their conception of God is, we'd say, well, you're just seeing a little bit different part, feeling a little bit different part of the elephant. But then again, what if it's not true? What if, in fact, we're not all talking about the same thing? A group called the Gospel Coalition did a nice summary article on why the elephant story falls short when it comes to reconciling the competing views of who God is. They made three points. The first one is, there is no Raja. In other words, what makes the story work is that we all know that in the story there is someone who has that big perspective and they really can see the whole elephant. And that gives them the right to say, you're all kind of right, but kind of wrong. But when you talk about any one of us, none of us sit in the position of a Raja. None of us has that perspective. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says this. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have? So, there is no Raja. Uh, the blind man might be aware his perception has limits, but he would be foolish to automatically assume that all contrasting views of other blind men are accurate descriptions of what he's found. They could be handling something completely different. The second point is that the story stops short. Because as we know, really all the blind men were wrong. What they thought an elephant was really was not true. It's not who the elephant was. And if they really wanted to know what an elephant is, they needed to search farther. They needed to gain a bigger perspective. And what they really needed was a revelation from a source greater than their personal experience. And third, the story doesn't make room for the elephant to speak. Uh, how greatly would the story change if the elephant had introduced himself to the blind man? Greg Kalkel says this, the claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own self-disclosure. He is not passive and silent, leaving us to guess about his nature, God tells us what he is like and what he wants. Now, to be sure, when we talk about God, we're talking about a being who is bigger than everything. But he's also real. And that means that he can't be just turned into anything that we want. He's bigger than everything, but that doesn't mean he can just be anything. Kind of like... Linus and the Great Pumpkin. 
Remember Linus, right? Every Halloween when it came around, Linus was convinced that there was the great pumpkin who would arise out of the pumpkin patch. And, and Linus would send letters to the great pumpkin asking him to grant his desires. And, and Linus had this whole elaborate scheme arranged in his mind of who the great pumpkin was and what the great pumpkin could do. And really, Linus could imagine anything he wanted about the great pumpkin because the great pumpkin doesn't exist. So go ahead, make him whatever you want him to be. But if the great pumpkin were real, we'd say, well, Linus, there's some things that you might think about the great pumpkin that may be true, but there could also be things you would think about the great pumpkin that would not be true. There are things that you could be wrong. And so the fact that God is so big that we can't comprehend everything about him doesn't mean that everything we might think about him is true. So how do you sort through all of these ideas about God? Because they say many radically different things. Let me give you a quick breakdown of all the world's religions. Maybe you've seen this before. Uh, you begin with this fundamental question, which is, is there a God or a force or gods or whatever it may be? Is there something beyond us that is out there? And there's two answers to that. Either it's yes or it's no. Either it is the theistic answer that yes, there is something beyond us, or it's the atheistic answer that says no, there is not. Now, now the, the atheistic answer has claimed a lot of knowledge for itself. It has claimed that it knows everything about everything and that it knows for sure that God isn't part of the equation. Now, there is a third one, the agnostic approach, and I spent some time as an agnostic, so I think I speak from some personal knowledge, but, but the agnostic is still trying to decide between these two things. Is it yes or is it no? The agnostic answer really is not an answer, okay? But, but it's gonna be one of the two. Either there is something beyond us or there isn't. Now, if you say no, the, the, the chart just ends there. But if you say yes, it breaks down to pretty much three big ways that people think about the power behind the universe. And that is that there is one, there is one God who's overall, or there's lots of gods, there's multiple deities, each of them with a little piece of the pie, if you will, or everything is God. Uh, pantheistic viewpoints, uh, I'm God, you're God, the, the air is God, the universe is God, okay? So it's either one, it's lots, or everything is God. And sometimes we think about ancient religions and we say, well, they just didn't really know how to separate truth from fiction. They were more easily given to superstition and flights of fancy, and so it makes sense that they would make up God as they saw fit. They just didn't know how to draw the line between what was real and what was fictional. But I would contend to you that God has revealed himself in a way that people have known for a long time the line between what is real and what is false. Check this out from Isaiah, okay, an Old Testament prophet. Guy lived a long time ago, back when supposedly everybody was just superstitious. And this is from Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah says, here's this guy. And, and he plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it. He's satisfied. He warms himself and he says, 
Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Even back in Isaiah's day, he could look and say, folk, that doesn't make any sense. You're using half of it to bake your dinner and the other half you're calling it your God. He says there, there's a big difference between worshiping a God who is true and real and worshiping a God that you have just made up. The Apostle Paul draws the same line. You come to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Paul says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, people, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul says people try to turn God into things that are less than God. And in the process, he says, they become foolish. God may be greater than we can comprehend, but he is not beyond our ability to know because he has chosen to make himself known. And one of the ways that Paul points to that he says God has chosen to make himself known is he makes himself known to us as the creator. When we look around at the created world, Paul says, really, we're without excuse to look at the complexity and the, and the intricacy and the design of the world around us. How could we miss the fact that there is a creator? And yet, we miss it all the time. I was watching a Netflix com documentary, a new one came out. It's called Inside the Mind of a Cat. It was a very short documentary. <laughs> I, I was interested, though, in two statements that were made uh, right at the outset. Uh, both of them came within about 15 seconds of each other. Uh, first, the narrator said this. Some of the traits that make them, cats, so charming evolved from their killer ancestors. Now, I don't doubt but what modern-day domestic cats have ancient ancestors, and, and for sure there is adaptation and change that happens in organisms. But we know how the rest of the story goes, right? One of the stories that we tell ourselves is that everything we see, cats and us and everything else, just came about through a blind, unguided process of chance. That there was no intelligence, there was no design behind it, it just evolved. And so I'm pretty sure that's, if you ask someone to tell the rest of the story, they'd say, well, yeah, and those ancient cats, they had evolved from something else, right? It just, it, it just happened. So some of the traits that makes them so charming evolved from their killer ancestors. And then 15 seconds later, Dr. Conreich, one of the leading experts on cats says, if one were asked to engineer the perfect predator, it's hard to imagine a better one than the cat. We get caught in this place. We look at the creation and we can see clearly that it has all the marks of an amazing piece of engineering. And yet, 
Looking at that story, we come around and tell ourselves a different story that says, but it just happened by accident. It just evolved. And like those poor hikers in the English countryside, it makes me ask, would you recognize the king if you met him? In trying to keep God out of the conversation, sometimes we end up saying silly things. And it's not because people aren't really smart. You can say a silly thing in a really smart way. I brought in this little, little rocking horse. And if I were to ask you, you know, how do you think this rocking horse came to be in my possession? You're smart people. You could come up with a lot of really great ideas about where this little rocking horse came from. Um, maybe it got ordered on Amazon. It was delivered to my house. That would be a valid guess. Um, maybe there was a high school wood shop that was getting rid of projects at the end of the year. And, and this was one of the projects that a student had made and, and I was able to pick it up from their, from their garage sale. Maybe it's uh, just a freak of nature and this tree grew like this. <laughs> and I happened to find it. But no matter how good your answer, your idea was, Let's say that before you ever started, I said, okay, I want you to guess where this little horse came from, but one answer you cannot come up with is, Tim made it. Now here's the problem. If we start the conversation by saying, here's the answer you can't come up with, you'll come up with good answers, but they'll always be wrong. Because the fact is, I made it. And I made it for my little girl which tells you how old it is because I think she turned 30 this year, didn't she? <laughs> um, but I made this for her because I love her. There's a whole story behind this little horse. And it's not just a freak of nature, and it's not something from Amazon. It's the product of a creator who created with love. And so Paul says, if we look at the creation around us and we don't see the hand of a loving creator. We are missing knowing who God is. The way that God is introduced to us in the Bible is as the creator. And as the creator, we know that he is the uncreated and eternal ground of being. There's nothing before God. God always has been. And that is one that I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around. How can anything be eternal. I don't have a category for that. that. That's like too much faith. But the fact is, we all have faith in something eternal. You can go back to my chart and you can be a, a hardcore atheist and I will guarantee you, you still have faith in something eternal. You know, the, the common theory used to be for where the universe came from, something called the steady state theory. And the steady state theory, again, tried to explain all that is here by saying, well, we're not going to get the answer God made it. So we've got to find another way to explain how everything is here. And so the steady state theory said, well, space has always been here. So space is eternal. And um, through some process we don't fully understand, at regular intervals, bubbles of hydrogen spontaneously sprang up in the universe and made the building blocks for life to exist. Now, I understand bubbles of hydrogen spontaneously bubbling up because I have had burritos. <laughs> but that is not the way the universe got here. 
Then later, we have what we call the Big Bang. And there's lots of good evidence to say that at one point, the universe as we know it was not here. And suddenly, at a point in time, all that is erupted into being. Scientists call it the singularity. The problem is nobody can really explain where that single incredible event sprang from out of nothing. And so there still is a belief that there's some kind of eternal thing back there that we don't know about, but we just believe that it was there and it happened. And what faith says is, yes, there is something eternal, but it's not hydrogen bubbles, and it's not an unexplained explosion in the vacuum of space. It's an intelligent, loving, all-powerful being who in himself is the ground of all being. One of the ways that we get to know God is through his creation. That's what Paul said in Romans. He said that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I've talked before about the James Webb Telescope. I am just fascinated with this piece of engineering. And as you know, the James Webb Telescope is already sending back to us new views of the universe in detail and clarity like we've never seen before. And when I see these, I think about that verse that comes out of Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But it's not just the big stuff. I think that God's creative intelligence, his detail is seen even in the smallest of things. I, I love microscopes. In fact, I've got a little digital microscope that connects to my laptop. And I went out into the yard last fall, and I just found a kind of nondescript clump of weeds and dead leaves. And I decided to pick some things out of that to see what there was. You know, the amazing thing is, even when you look at the tiny, you'll find intricacy and detail and design and the miracle of life. In fact, I used to host some prayer retreats, and one of the things we would take along in the prayer retreat were microscopes. I'd say, just take a moment to look at what the Creator has put even in the smallest things that speak to His glory. If He is the Creator, then He is also the moral foundation that defines what is good. In the creation story, one of the first things you see is that God makes moral judgments. At each stage as God creates, God says, he looked at it and he said, it is good. Some things were declared as good. One thing was declared as not good. And that was when God created the first man, the, the solitary man. And God looked and he said, that is not good. I can do better than this. And he made woman. No, that's not actually what he said. <laughs> he said, that's not good for this man to be alone. Now, that's not because God messed up, okay? It wasn't like, God went, wow, I forgot all about the fact he needed somebody, all right? God wanted to highlight the fact that he created us for a relationship. And he created man and woman uniquely to have a relationship with each other. Together, they were to be his image bearers. And God said, this is good. And then there was the thing that God made that could have been good, but also turned out to be very, very bad. What J. 
Genesis calls the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was this opportunity for mankind to choose self-determination in place of loving submission to God. And as the story goes, they fell for the serpent's lie. And the lie was that choosing to go their own way, to call their own shots, to make up their own rules would make them all wise. It would make life better. But instead of gaining, they ended up losing. They suffered separation from God. They suffered a fracture in their own relationship. And as you follow the story, the fractures grew and extended in every direction. There were fractures between their children. There were fractures in the societies that grew up around them. There were even fractures in the natural world around because it became used and abused in ways that God never intended. And that brings us to a second way that God has chosen to make himself known to us. And that is as the re-creator. How many of you ever had one of these? An Etch-A-Sketch. Now, I don't know who the nut is that drew that picture on Etch-A-Sketch. If I could get a square, I felt pretty good. My, my Etch-A-Sketch abilities were quite limited. But you know how it goes. Whether you're trying to make a square or you're drawing a mural, if you don't like how the picture's turning out, you just shake it and it all goes away and you start over with a clean slate. And that certainly would have been one approach that God could have taken to his creation. We messed it up pretty big. And God would have been totally justified to say, you know, let's just shake that clean and start over. And you find from stories like Noah or some of the dialogue that Moses had with the Lord that that could have been a real option. And yet God didn't choose to do that. Instead of wiping everything out, doing the etch-a-sketch move, we find all through the Old Testament these hints that God had a greater plan. There was something else that he wanted to do. Something that was rooted in a part of his nature even more fundamental than desire for justice was his nature of love and grace and second chances. One of the chief ways, the chief way that we see that is how God has made himself known through his son, Jesus. See, not like that old story of the Raja where the elephant couldn't speak. In the real story, the elephant has spoken. And he has spoken through his son. In fact, the apostle John, in writing his biography of Jesus, called Jesus the word. God spoke. Here's what Jesus said about himself at one point. This comes from John 14. One of his disciples, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Right? Who is God? Show him, show him to us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know who God is? Creation will tell you part of the story. But the rest of the story... The most important part of the story, the recreating part of the story, is to know who Jesus is. Here's how Hebrews says it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what do we learn about God by knowing who Jesus is? When you read the story of Jesus, you'll find that God is someone who is willing to enter into our pain. He's not the God of the deist that sits at a safe distance and just watches the wheels come off the wagon. He entered into a broken world and felt all of its pain. He's a God who is willing to touch the untouchables, the lepers, the ones labeled as sinners by polite society. You see Jesus regularly going and associating with those people, making a point to go to them and spend time with them. He's a God who is willing to forgive and to rescue broken people. Remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, caught red-handed, doing wrong. And, and all the good, righteous people knew what should be done if they're going to purge those kind of people from society. She should be stoned. She should be eliminated. And they bring her to Jesus and they say, hey, what should we do? And Jesus' response is, well, the one of you who's without sin should probably throw the first rock. And everybody left. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say it doesn't matter. He didn't say that sin isn't sin. He said, I didn't come to stone you. I came to restore you. And he is a God who is able to give new life to people who feel dead inside and eternal life to those who have been restored to him through faith. Recently, I learned of an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi. I was introduced to it through a podcast that was featuring uh, Makoto Fujimura. Makoto is a Japanese-American, an acclaimed artist, lives in New York, and he's also a dedicated follower of Jesus. And one of his passions as an artist is to connect his faith with his art. And no wonder Kintsugi caught his attention. The term Kintsugi literally means to join with gold. And the artist in Kintsugi begins with a shattered, broken piece of pottery. Uh, he or she then reassembles it using precious metals like gold and silver, hence the name to join with gold. And in doing that, part of what the artist is doing is showing great love for the thing that's been broken. What seemed like it was lost, that would have no more use, that was ready to be thrown away, the Kintsugi artist says, this is worth saving. It also demonstrates the great skill as the artist recreates something that seems to be irretrievably damaged. And in doing it, the artist actually makes it more valuable and more beautiful than it was before it was broken. You know, we could go around this morning and there are a lot of us that could share our stories of being broken and thinking, this is irretrievable. My, my life is over. And yet, the experience of God stepping in and putting pieces back together that we never thought we put back together. 
And, and what comes out the other side looks a little different than what went in. It's not quite the perfect picture we had planned for our lives. And yet, God has this way of bringing beauty out of the things that are broken. He is the recreator. He is the great Kintsugi artist of broken lives. I love this image out of Revelation 21. John, in his vision, says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember in the garden, God used to dwell with man, and then that relation to the broken? Here at the end, God again is dwelling with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, all those broken things, have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He is the creator. He is the recreator. And that brings me back to the chart. Christianity is not the only monotheistic religion. There are other religions in the world, Islam, Judaism, that also are monotheistic. But there is something that sets Christianity apart from all those other perspectives on God. Everywhere else, the way that you get right with God is you work hard at it. You, you've got to do enough, be good enough, overcome all your bad habits. That's how you earn your place with God is you work for it. Christianity says something very different. It talks about grace. It says that in ourselves, none of us can put the pieces back together well enough. And yet God in grace sends his most precious substance, his son, to restore us and put us back together. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So who is God? He is the creator. He is the recreator. He's the one who loved so much that he gave what was most precious, his only son, to restore and to rescue people just like us who are broken and destined for discard. That is who God is. Don't forget, we're going to pray tonight at 6 o'clock. I hope you can join us.